I invite you to turn with me to our reading for this afternoon, which comes to us from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Actually, we'll start at verse 11. That's where the section begins in this Bible anyway. We'll start at verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, up to 6, verse 2. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This afternoon we will consider Scripture as it is summarized in Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 522. Lord's Day 6, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who is at the same time true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is the minimum number of lines that you need to draw a face? Some of you might say, I don't know, I don't draw. But you've all seen drawings before. So what is the minimum number of lines that you need in order to draw a face? Before you can recognize that this is a face being drawn. And the answer is not that many, actually. Some parts are more important than others, so you start with those. And if you're going to draw a face anyway, it's pretty, pretty easy to draw what the, what the person is like. That depends on things like the eyes, the lines around the eyes, the mouth. All you need to do is change a few details in your set. Cartoonists do this all the time. Now, you could say that that the Bible does something similar when it comes to showing us Jesus Christ. It's as if it starts to draw the outline of a face and then slowly fill in the details. The opening chapters of Genesis explain how God created human beings to love him and to serve him. They were able to talk with him freely. But they deliberately rejected God and plunged themselves into sin and misery they were sent out of the presence of God. As human beings, we are no longer able to speak to God without a mediator. Already in paradise, God promised to provide that mediator. And as the centuries went by, he provided more and more details. Just like someone drawing lines to reveal a face, God began revealing details regarding the mediator who he would be, what he would be like. At first he promised that the mediator would crush the serpent, and then as the catechism explains it, he continued to reveal more details through the patriarchs and through the prophets, the patriarchs being people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Job too, actually Job was another one. So in his interactions with these people, he revealed more and more details as to what the mediator would be like. He also depicted the work of the mediator through the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the Mosaic law. The law did not exist just for its own sake. It was meant to depict the the reconciliation that the mediator would make through his own blood. And the ceremonies were meant to to show what God was like. They were meant to teach that he is holy that he is righteous, that he is just. And they were meant to remind the people of that over and over until it became as natural and obvious to them as the air that they breathed. That was the purpose. 
Lord's Day 6 of the Catechism explains all of this. It explains why this was necessary. It takes a step back, and it says, it asks all of these why questions. It says, okay, so God says that I need a mediator, but why do I need him? And once I know that I need him, where can I find him? And once I know where to find him, how can I know him? So that is also the, the call then that comes to us from Scripture as it's summarized in the Catechism that we are to be reconciled to God through his mediator. And we'll pay attention to two points. Why do I need this mediator and who is this mediator? Lord's Day 6 says that we need a mediator. The question is, what is a mediator actually? You've come across the term before. And actually, you don't only find this term in the catechism. It is also a legal term. For example, the Department of Justice of the Government of Western Australia has a webpage where it explains what mediation is and what a mediator does. I'm going to quote from that page, and it's a, it's a fairly long quote, but we're going to compare their idea of a mediator with what Scripture says. So, it says, quote, Mediation is a process which uses a neutral person to help parties in a dispute reach an agreement or settlement. The mediator will help the parties and their lawyers, if they have them, talk to each other in a respectful and safe environment before going to court. After mediation, the parties may reach an agreement and avoid a court trial altogether. Parties talk through a problem and reach their own agreement with the support of the mediator. The mediator will speak directly to you and to the lawyers present, and you can speak openly. Each party will have an opportunity to explain their view of the dispute. Parties are encouraged to understand each other's perspective. Options for how to settle or agree are developed and explored during the mediation. End quote. Now, right there already, you can see that the kind of mediator that the catechism is talking about has a much deeper role than that. Consider again this description from the government website and compare it to what Scripture and the catechism are teaching us. First, the description suggests that the mediator is a neutral person. They say mediation is a process which uses a neutral person to help parties in a dispute reach an agreement or settlement. But our Lord Jesus Christ is not a neutral person. He lived for one thing and one thing only, and that was the glory of God. He lived to do the will of God. In John 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So he is not neutral. He very much lived out his his role as savior of human beings and as the one who honored the name of God through that and honored his glory. Second, the description suggests that the offended parties can reach their own agreement. It said, parties talk through a problem and reach their own agreement with the support of the mediator. But the Bible says that we are no more than dust and ashes. We are like a dream. We are like grass. We are like the wind Gone with the wind. How can the temporary, sinful, fallen human race ever come to any kind of an agreement with an eternal, omnipotent, holy God? 
God already set the terms of engagement. As Lord's Day 5 put it, according to God's righteous judgment, and righteous means that he's fair, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Those are the terms. Those terms have been clear from the beginning. He said at the very beginning, the day that you disobey the commandments, you will die. We knew that. We disobeyed anyway. We've been disobeying ever since. There's never been a day that we did not disobey. So how then could we ever reach our own agreement with him? In the third place, the description suggests that the offended parties can understand each other's perspective. It says each party will have an opportunity to explain their view of the dispute. Parties are encouraged to understand each other's perspective. Well, the catechism has already explained to us we, by nature, are not righteous. We no longer have eternal life. This is why he had to obtain for us and restore to us eternal life. He needs to restore righteousness and life to us because those things are missing. And the life here is spiritual life. Spiritual life is communion with God. And without that communion with God, you are simply unable to understand the gravity of the issue. God has already explained his side of the dispute. Every page of scripture is full of this, and we are unable to understand it apart from his regenerating work in our lives. And that's because of our sin. So we really are in no position to come before God and to bargain with him about the terms. We have no rights to stand on. We forfeited our righteous standing before God on the day that we sinned against him in Adam. And we continue to underline that sin every day through our actions. Humanity has zero bargaining power before God. So everything is going to depend on the mediator. Our mediator needs to meet very specific conditions in order to be able to speak on behalf of man. Question and answer 16 says that he must be a true and a righteous man. Why true man? Well, because man got us into this to begin with. The justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. It is a foundational principle of God's justice. God is just. He does not, not punish people that are unrelated to the facts. Romans 5 verse 19 says that as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the common element in that is man. Man got us into this. A man will have to get us out of this. The same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. Now, there are some who might say, well, why does one have to pay for all? Why can we not each be held accountable for our own sins? And people try this all the time. You know, this is something that is inherent in us. People will say things like, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I promise it won't happen again. And then they try to be extra nice to make up for the bad things that they did and said. Now, of course, you can already see that doesn't really compensate for the harm that has been done. In fact, there are, there are actually two reasons why we can't pay for our sins. The first is that we cannot change what we have done. We cannot go back in time and undo the damage caused by all of our sins. Even if you could, even if you could undo the damage that had been caused by your sins, 
you still would not be able to undo the fact that it happened in the first place, that this really happened in time. You cannot erase history. And history only goes in one direction. Remember that God's holiness demands perfection for all of life. If you try to fix things up in the last half of your life to make up for the first half of your life, it doesn't change what actually happened in the first half of your life. So you are unable to pay for your own sins simply because you are bound by time. And the second reason why we can't pay for our sins is because we cannot change who we are. Even if we could make amends for the past, we cannot change who we are in the present. We can't change our character. We can't change our nature. We can't change our disposition. We can't give ourselves spiritual life. We can maybe change some bad habits, but we're not able to change the sinful nature that permeates every part of our life. So we cannot speak up for ourselves. But the same human nature which a sin should pay for sin. We are not able to live up to the requirement, but the requirement still stands. If we can't speak up for ourselves, let alone pay for ourselves, how can we ever be reconciled to God? We need a mediator. We need someone to speak on our behalf and someone who does more than just speak. Someone who reconciles us to God and for him to do that he needs to be righteous. One who himself is a sinner cannot speak for others let alone pay for them. So this is what the justice of God demands. Now maybe that seems intimidating to you or unreasonable. Maybe the idea of God's unconditional justice, of his unlimited wrath, of his unrestrained hatred of sin makes you uncomfortable. And maybe sometimes when you share the gospel with other people, you feel apologetic about that. But how, should, how can we ever feel that we should apologize for these attributes of God? We should worship him for these things. Because it proves that God is true to his word. It proves that God keeps his promises. God will never compromise himself. He will never compromise his holiness. He will never compromise his righteousness. He will never compromise his justice. Because to compromise on any of these things would mean that he has to compromise himself. And he will never do that. So when people try to minimize God's justice, they are actually minimizing God himself. That's really the problem with all man-made religion. The fundamental problem with every man-made religion is that it suggests that you can pay God off. As long as you live a generally respectable life, as long as you try to do more good than evil in your life, God has to overlook whatever sins you have committed. And people who believe that essentially do not believe that God is just. They do not believe that he really punishes sin. Or if he does punish them, that he will not punish them for their sin. Or if he does punish them for their sin, that it will be on their terms. Or if he doesn't do it on their terms, then it won't be quite as bad as the Bible says it is. And the catechism says something very different. It says God cannot be bought. It makes it very clear to us. He cannot be bought. He will not change the standards. He does not compromise who he is. And you should never apologize for that. That should make us admire God more, not less. Think about it. This means that he keeps his word. 
That's our salvation. Imagine if he didn't keep his word. Imagine if his standards would be up for discussion or open to negotiation. If that were true, how could you ever be sure of the gospel? How could you ever be sure of your own forgiveness? But you can be sure of the gospel because God keeps his word. So our mediator must be a true man. And says question answer 17, the mediator must be true God. Why? Because God's wrath must be endured in the body. And a mere man cannot endure God's wrath. Sin happened in the body. The body is the, the locus of sin. The place where sin happens is in the body, and we sin with our body. And so the punishment for sin must be endured in the body. That's why Jesus had to be born as a man. But he had to be more than just a man because someone who was only human could not endure the wrath of God. You know, people do amazing things all of the time. Every year, records are being broken in all sorts of sports and events. People run marathons. They climb mountains. They swim great rivers. They cross deserts. They paddle across oceans. They sail around the world. People do incredible things. But in the end, everybody has their limits. Everybody has their limits. Even a morally perfect human being would still only be a human being. And as Lord's Day 5 reminded us, no mere creature, no mere human being, let's say, can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. So in the end, the mediator has to be true God. Who can save you from the wrath of God except for God himself? How could anyone less than God ever deal with this? So in the end, for us to be reconciled means that God himself needs to make it happen. That's what verse 18 of our reading is pointing to. It says, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. God had to make it happen. God did make it happen. That is the gospel. As it says in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How did God do this? He did it through Christ. And we'll pay attention to that in our second point. Who is this mediator? Verse 21 of our reading says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's very important to get the wording right. He says, For our sake he made him who to be sin who knew no sin. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that he made Christ personally a sinner. Christ, it says that he made him to be sin. That's something different. It means that Christ himself was innocent, but in God's eyes he personified sin. God made him to be sin. God polluted him with your sin. Do you realize what that means? Christ was made to be sin. He was made to be sin with your sin. And not only that, but you, in return, embodied the righteousness of God. That's what verse 21 says as well. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
In theology, we call this double imputation. And if you ask my catechism students from last year what imputation means, then they would tell you it means to credit. Christ was credited with your sin so that you could be credited with his righteousness. And that's what the last half of question and answer 17 is referring to. It says Christ bore the burden of God's wrath so that he might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. God himself did this. And if God did it, it was done perfectly because God does not do things that are imperfect. And then your righteousness is true righteousness. Simply because God is true to himself. That's why he demands that his justice be satisfied. So if he then is so true to himself, and if he then satisfies his justice, then you can be absolutely sure that it really was satisfied. You can be absolutely sure that his righteousness really was your righteousness. See, this is why you cannot compromise on his other qualities, because the same truthfulness that makes punishment so certain for the unrepentant is the same truthfulness that makes his forgiveness so real. God is much angrier about sin than we realize, but he's also much more merciful than we realize. People who try to buy him off with their own pale, half-baked deeds don't understand that. At heart, they don't really think that God would forgive them. And that comes from a misunderstanding of who God is. God is always true to himself. And so the righteousness that he gives is true righteousness. The forgiveness he extends is true forgiveness. But you need to believe it. And that is why the next Lord's Day in the Catechism is Lord's Day 7, which is about faith, because it's making that connection to faith. See, there's a reason why it got put together the way it did. So you do not find a mediator like this. You do not arrange to meet with a mediator like this yourself. A mediator like this can only ever be given to you. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. God's law was broken. God opens the door to reconciliation. God sets the terms. God's Holy Spirit reveals more and more what kind of person would satisfy the terms. He depicted him in the sacrifices, described him in the prophecies, sang of him in the Psalms, and all of these descriptions are like a drum roll building up to the appearance of Christ on the stage of world history. And then Christ himself appears, and the last line is drawn in the picture. God says, I need a mediator, and then he shows Christ to me in the pages of Scripture. That was God's idea all along. The triune God participated in our redemption. And it's important to remember that because sometimes you find literature in places like your local interdenominational Christian bookstore. I'm thinking Kurang here, for example. And this literature makes it sound like salvation is primarily a work of Jesus Christ. Even if they don't say that explicitly, it's implied by what is all left out. But our reading makes it clear that this approach is not biblical. It says in verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So he renews us. He, he redeems us, saves us, and then renews us. The whole triune, all of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in this. 
salvation. And then the catechism says, so how do you know that? How can you be sure? Through the gospel. And we should never forget, you do not know Christ, cannot know Christ without the gospel. That's why Paul in verse 20 of our reading says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that has to be central in the life of a church in the life of our families, and in our lives as individuals. Anything less than the gospel is not enough. There are numerous appeals to the gospel in this passage. And the gospel is so important because the call of the gospel is the call of the living God himself. The call to hear the word, to believe it, to read it, to meditate on it. Like it says in Psalm 1, his delight is in God's holy law. All day and night he ponders it with awe. And you need to make the gospel your own. It's a sad but true reality that there have been people who who go to church their whole lives, but they never make the gospel their own. They're covered in the veneer of Christianity, but, but if you scratch, you'll find an unbeliever underneath. And those are the people that Paul is writing to as well here. Let's not forget that the Corinthian church had many problems And they had rejected him as a preacher of the gospel. He's writing to this whole church, including these people, when he says in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He implores, he's begging on his knees, make it your own. Be reconciled to God. Yes, reconciliation happened on the cross, but on the other hand, it is still incomplete in the sense that it will mean nothing to you unless you personally believe it unless you personally make it your own if you do not respond to the call of the gospel in faith if you are not personally reconciled to god then you cannot experience this reconciliation that scripture mentions to us at the beginning of the sermon we asked ourselves a question how many lines do you need before you recognize a face Before Christ came, God's people did not know what he would look like either. As God revealed himself in Scripture, he drew more and more lines. And then Christ came and the the picture came to life. Christ is the one. So we are to acknowledge him. So please, dear brothers and sisters, obey God's command to believe is a command. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So be reconciled to God. Amen.